You're listening to the Resurgent ATL Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you. I've been coming to this city now for over four decades and speaking in um, large and small venues, some of the mega churches in this city. And uh, I can say without fear of contradiction and without any attempt to make you feel as if I'm patronizing you that the worship this morning was exceptional. Julie, wherever she is, and I thought Cody did a pretty good job too. (laughs) Yeah, I got this sense that, you know, especially in times like these that we're living in, when it seems like the atmosphere Uh, that is uh, so filled with tirades of gaslighting that it almost asphyxiates you. You feel yourself sometimes on a regular basis trying to catch your breath. And uh, I got this sense when I came in this morning, I don't know what your experience was, that it was like stepping into a hyperbaric chamber. And, And if you're not familiar with this modern um, product of science and technology, it, it uh, is designed specifically for the purpose of enhancing, you know, and receiving pure oxygen three to five times of what we usually get in a normal atmosphere. Anybody else sense that? I, I felt like I got a breath from heaven this morning. And if you didn't, it's just because you didn't inhale. I see some of you where your minds are going already. Very quickly, if you will, turn with me to the gospel according to Luke in chapter 24. It's going to be a lengthy reading, uh, but that will help some of you that are possibly behind on your Bible reading. Uh, So Luke's gospel chapter 24, beginning with verse 13 That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walking with each other about, or talking, I should say, with each other about all these things that had been transpiring. Um, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, everybody say we had hoped. Say it again. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen 
a vision of angels, and they said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found out it was just as the women said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should have suffered these things and entered into glory and beginning with Moses? And what a teaching this must have been. This is the word teaching the entirety of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, so they drew near to a village to which they were going. And he acted or gestured as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. But in that instant, he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us as we were talking with him on the road? And he opened the scriptures. Now, there's no, there should be no cause for alarm for my lengthy reading in assuming that I'm going to do a deep dive and exegesis of all of these verses. So calm your nerves. Those of you who have been in some of the meetings I've done in the area, you know that I have a propensity to spend a little time with a text. But I want to encourage you, all is well. I want to talk to you about the road that leads to reality is paved with questions. The road that leads to reality is paved with questions. I, I think, first of all, we have to get context for this story and consider a few of the aspects of it. It's in the wake of the resurrection, obviously, when Jesus will appear and disappear in random fashion, in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, to unexpecting people. The two that he appears to here on the road to Emmaus, it's obvious from uh, the narrative that they are broken and they are bewildered. Not only are that, they're broken and bewildered, they're blind. Here are these two disciples on this road to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk at a leisurely pace. They probably could do it in two and a half or three hours. And the question is, are they trying to distance themselves from this heinous crime that had taken place? The greatest travesty of justice that had ever occurred. The only innocent human being that had ever taken a breath on this planet since Adam, who had been bludgeoned to death. A kangaroo court had arraigned him, indicted him, and sentenced him to death, their mind is spinning. They are, I feel like what a lot of people are experiencing today, they are in a literal fog, a mental fog, as to what is this all about and why did it happen? So the question is, are they trying to distance themselves from this terrible crime? 
Or do they feel like that if the further they get away from it, that they themselves will not be held culpable? And they themselves will not suffer the same thing that Jesus did. You know, sometimes I think when we look at uh, these kinds of passages, we do so looking at it through judgmental lens because there is no such thing, in my opinion, as unbiased thought. We bring every previous experience into every new experience right now. And I will address this at the conclusion. Right now, there are certain bias that are at play at a subliminal level that is influencing everything about your perception of me and what I'm saying. Now, that doesn't make me insecure because I've been doing this for over 40 years. So don't look at me in that tone of voice. But I want, I, want, I want to say this to you. You know, I don't look at these two individuals, which, by the way, did you notice it only identifies one, Cleopas. The other one remains anonymous to this day. Why do you think that is? I mean, acquiring minds like mine want to know. I think sometimes when somebody's name is not included, they remain anonymous. It is to allow us to enter into the passage itself, and they're into the psyche of the individual that is struggling with some of the things that we struggle with even here in a contemporary sense. Am I talking to the right people this morning? You know, we do call a certain text that we reference, we call it a passage, don't we? Have you ever wondered why we call it a passage? I, I have a theory about that. It, you know, we draw your attention to a particular chapter and verse and we say we're going to read from this text or read from this passage. I think that we call it a passage because it represents just that, a liminal space, a threshold, a passage from which we can step from where we are in our illusory existence, in our existential pain and valley into a greater reality. Does that make sense to you so far? You see, when I open the Bible, that's the way I approach it. When I open the Bible... I ask him to allow me to enter into the margins and in between the lines. Let me step into this portal, into this passage where I can experience what they experience because this is not just a story about them, it's a story about us. I know it happened to two individuals 2,000 years ago, but this might as well be us because all of us right now are on a road to a new reality that is certainly paved with a lot of questions. We hear, we hear these terms used now, you know, with great frequency that we didn't used to hear, reset and pivot and new norm or going back to a norm. And I don't want to wear you out with all that, but it's, it's here, isn't it? I don't think that they were deserting for some of the reasons we might assume. I will say this, and if you don't take anything away, anything else away from what I have to share with you this morning, I have come to the conclusion after all these many years of working with people that people don't ever really give up on God. They give up on themselves. And I think these people are giving up on themselves. And I might add a point that I've probably made in my prayer prior visits. I was condemned in most of my 
years of spiritual formation and threatened and manipulated and intimidated. I know that never happened to you. Um, constantly making me par paranoid that I might potentially, that I had the potential of backsliding or turning my back on God. Anybody else recognize that? I was browbeaten by a religious system and uh, caused to live in constant fear that I might be that one that would backslide or turn my back on God until one day my eyes were open in Psalm 139 when I read David as David is ruminating and he's trying to wrap his mind around the ubiquitous presence of God, the inescapable presence of God, the everywhereness of God. And it occurs to him, he says, you know my thoughts before I have them. You know when I'm going to stand up or when I'm going to sit down. You know all of these things. You are more aware of me than I am of myself. He goes to extremes then. He says, you know, I, I could take the wings of the morning like the mythological fig figure, you know, Mercury, and go to the uttermost parts of the sea into a distant place, and you are there. And I particularly like this place because I've spent a few nights in this dimension, he said, I could make my bed in hell, but you are there. When I read that, I began to realize the everywhereness of God. Don't you like that word, everywhereness? I'm going to write a book about that pretty soon. The everywhereness of God. I realized that if I turned away from God, that I was still facing him. There was no way for me to turn from him without turning to him. So they're walking and they're having this conversation and they are, they're, they're wounded themselves even though their wounds are not visible like Jesus' wounds. Have you ever heard of the science of epigenetics? Anybody? I see a few hands. It's a fascinating area of science that basically suggests that trauma can leave molecular scars on our DNA, then those scars can be passed down genetically through the generations. As one person said it, there are wounds that never show on the body that are deeper and more hurtful than anything that bleeds. And even though these two individuals probably looked whole on the outside, they were bleeding on the inside. And I do believe it's true as well that you can bear almost anything, almost anything as long as you know what you're going through has meaning. Oh, we could, we could stop there. We could pause there for a long, long time. Because that's what people are groping for right now more than ever before, meaning. It is what it is, as we say, almost glibly. But where's the meaning in it? May I suggest to you that real wisdom is learning not to say, why is this happening to me? But what is it saying to me? Because everything and everyone is my teacher. Now, that may sound like a very broad statement, but it's true. Everything and everyone is my teacher. 
And we have the choice right now in this culture, in this society. We have a choice to make. We can choose life or death, blessing or cursing. Remember from the book of Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy? You've probably been reading Deuteronomy this week, haven't you? The gospel of Deuteronomy. Choose life or death, blessing or cursing. So we have a choice right now as to whether or not we're going to continue to allow ourselves to be a part of the collective consciousness of our culture that is spiraling down into this vortex of futility. Or we can think another thought. We can think another way. We can realize that there is a greater reality than what appears. Hmm. I have encountered lately, and I think it's indicative of these two individuals, I've encountered lately more people that are suffering from emotional exhaustion. You know, it's the feeling that you have that sometimes that you just can't name. And when people ask you, when they genuinely ask you how you're feeling, you, you can't seem to find the words to explain what you're feeling. That must have been what these two people were feeling. You get tired of being stronger than you feel. Are you there? Anybody get tired of being stronger than you feel? And you feel bad about not being able to do something about the situation because you don't have any control over it. One of my favorite authors has four different perspectives, and some of you are going to think this is somewhat melancholy in tone, but don't rush to judgment too soon. He says there are essentially four initiations into reality. The first is, is you have to recognize that life is hard. Now, it, you know, we shouldn't treat life as if it's a sexually transmitted disease or it's a life sentence. No, we shouldn't treat life that way, but life is hard. And this ongoing curriculum we called life is not meant for us to continue to try to analyze the why. It's for us to make the choice that I'm not just going to groan and grumble through this, I'm going to grow through it. Because you already know, as the old axiom says, wherever you go, you are there, and every problem you've ever had, you've been present. Oh, I think I should probably move on from that. <laughs> See, we're going to come back into this conversation that is taking place. I, I've always, every, every time I take this text, I've always found it, and you might not see it this way, I've found it somewhat comical because these two individuals are in this mental fog and Jesus just <laughs> materializes. 
and they don't recognize him. There is something about traumatic, traumatic experiences that create a condition that is known as scotoma. And scotoma is a blindness to the obvious. A blindness to the obvious. You see, I believe that God, as Paula de Arce says, is always coming to us disguised as our own individual lives. See, this, the scotoma is not something that is the result of this marvelous apparatus, this camera that allows us to interpret and to perceive the visible world, but it's something that happens here because you don't see with your eyes as much as you see with your mind. I mean, how many times have you looked at something until you thought your retinas would rupture and you, you've been looking at it all along, but then finally you said, I see it. What, you didn't see it before? It was right there. And Jesus just appears, engages them and says, hey, what are you talking about? You don't find that comical? The resurrected Lord who will travel at the speed speed not of thought, faster than thought, that will travel during these 40 days of his resurrection appearances, showing himself alive by many infallible proofs, as Luke would say in Acts chapter 1. He travels at the speed of intention, and he just, there he is. Hey, guys, what are you talking about? Have you not heard? Is that not humorous to you? Would it be irreverent to suggest that maybe Jesus chuckled under his breath? Because the, the answer is asking a question. And God never asks you questions because he's in need of information. God asks you questions because he's engaging you. He does not want to force ideas on you because he never tests you to see what you've learned, but to see if you're still willing to learn. Beginning at Moses and the prophets. I can't imagine, of course, Jesus could say so much with so few words, couldn't he? I can't imagine him reaching back to Moses in the book of Exodus. And in that walk, mate, there must have been a number of pauses. And it must have been incredibly awkward. You know, things have been more awkward in the last two years than I think any of us have ever experienced. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I'm, uh, can I be vulnerable with you? I'm going to anyway. I'm just, I'm just a guest here, so I'm trying to be nice. I occasionally have issues with control. Forgetting that life is hard. I'm not as important as I think I am. I'm not in control. I didn't control who I was born to, and I won't control when I leave here. And the last one that I left out was, I'm going to die. 
so I might as well enjoy the ride. Because it's hell all the way to hell, and it's heaven all the way to heaven. It's my choice. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he impacts. Can you imagine? He comes all the way through the Pentateuch. He comes through the historical books, the poetical books, and he's pointing out, that was talking about me, that was talking about me. But they still didn't get it. Do you realize that most of the people that you're trying to help, maybe you've had this experience, most of the people I'm trying to help these days, they don't need another Bible verse. Oh, some of you thought I said something that I didn't. I wasn't speaking irreverently of the Scripture. I revere the Scripture. I have great respect for it. I've spent 45 years of my life as a student of it. But you can get in a certain situation, as these individuals were, that the Bible's not going to help you. Oh, did I suck all the air out of the room? The Bible's not going to help you. Because this, it doesn't get any better than this. This is the word incarnate. The word made flesh. Teaching the scripture. There's, there's something beyond that experience. I'm not saying that anything replaces it. They were in need of something beyond that. You see... <clears throat> When it comes to our minds, what we believe about God. Now, make sure you get this one. When it comes to our minds, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And most people don't realize when they say they believe in God, they believe their beliefs about God. And there's a great difference between believing in God and believing your beliefs about God. Because you will discover, as these individuals did, that God often doesn't answer you in the way you wanted him to, but he does answer you in the way you needed him to. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a fan of Rainer Maria Rilke, amazing poet. I'll share this with you when it comes to Oh, listen to it. It is, it fits so well in this text that it just throbs with trauma and tragedy. Remember, I told you this is the road to reality that is paved with questions. Rilke says, don't search for the answers which could not be given you to, to you now because you would not be able to live them if you had them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing, live your way into the answer. The mind, and I don't think, I don't think it's unique to me, the, the, the mind has this insatiable need to know. And most of what we've been taught about faith, as far as I'm concerned, is rather faulty because if I were to ask you what is the opposite of faith, if I don't miss my guess, most of you would say the opposite of faith is doubt, which I would challenge that and say the opposite of faith is not doubt, 
the opposite of faith is certainty. And so we are learning right now more than ever before to live in uncertainty, which means you're being tutored in faith. Boy, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? But it's true all the same. I'm trying to make selections here in what I want to omit. I feel like that when we are disappointed, it's not because God has failed us, but because our expectations of God has failed us. And we choose just to live in our minds instead of just living our lives. I've, I've, now, see, this, this is something that is extremely convicting to me. So I have to really muster a lot of fortitude to even bring this up, even though I'm talking to an audience, because uh, this is an area where I struggle. Uh, I've heard it said that overthinking is the art of creating problems that weren't even there to begin with. You heard it. All you overthinkers, there is therefore now no condemnation <laughs> to all of my overthinking friends. You can overthink a small problem until it, become, it, it begins to look insurmountable, or you can overthink something positive in your life until it doesn't look so positive anymore. <laughs> You're the ones that worry about not worrying. Cody, you can start playing just as I am now. <laughs> See, these movies that play in our minds, they create these multiple complex scenarios, don't they? And it's really the source of stress. And it, it, the source of stress is often more a product of your imagination than reality. It's just the way you're thinking. And I just want to encourage you in knowing that condemning yourself is not going to help you in that area. It's just recognizing that all of us, I believe, grow more. Get this now. All of us grow more by getting it wrong than we do by getting it right. God cannot resist our weaknesses. There's one thing about you that is irresistible to him among many, but one in particular is your weaknesses because he recognizes that that gives him the opportunity to be the perfecter of your faith. Isn't that what the scripture says anyway? He's the author and the perfecter of my faith. See, I came out of a culture that was constantly reminding me that I didn't have enough faith. And really, they were taking sound bites of Scripture and manipulating them in such a way that was more mind control than anything else. I hope that wasn't offensive. I have a tendency to do that without even realizing it sometimes. But, uh, see, faith is not about you summoning something from the recesses of your soul that enables you to be optimistic. No. 
You can't have faith, the faith of God, until you have faith in God, which means I trust him when I cannot trace him. That's why Paul would say in this great passage in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives. Wait a minute, Paul, you're confusing me. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I, what? I live by the faith of the Son of God. It wasn't my faith that initiated this anyway. It was his faith in me before I had faith in him. Now you understand why I say what you believe about God is the most important thing about you because it will influence what you believe about yourself. See, we've made evangelism this whole effort to try to get people to invite Jesus into their lives when in reality evangelism is more about him inviting you into his life and his reality. It is not you that hath chosen him, but he chose you. You get anything out of this so far? These, these two individuals are blind, but their blindness, this is the encouraging part of, about this, it, learn, it leads to a burning heart. Do you notice that? Did not our hearts burn within us? I wish I had time to talk to you about this prescription for what he did in the breaking of bread. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to him. If you go back in the Gospels, every time Jesus touched bread, he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And it usually when he did that, it multiplied. We hear so much about breakthrough these days that it's almost become wholesale. We don't understand that breakthrough is always in relationship to breaking open and breaking down. See, that's, again, that does, that does not fit well with the Western mindset. But everything in the kingdom of God is the antithesis of what we know in our culture. The way up is down. The way you live is by dying. The way you add is by multiplying. Or the way you add is by subtracting. And the way you multiply is by dividing. That's, that's a different reality. That's an alternative wisdom, isn't it? Why can't we see? Oh, there are a number of reasons for that. I don't want to oversimplify it. We're satiated with information unlike any other generation before us. That certainly exacerbates the situation, doesn't it? But why can't we see? Why couldn't these disciples on the road to Emmaus see? Why can't we? Why are we blind? I, to I told you I would share this with you as I near my closing. I think the reason why we can't see is because we have a number of different forms of bias, unperceived bias, prejudice, pre-critical pre inclinations in favor of something or against something. Before you even think about it, it comes to bear. It's a pattern distortion in our ability to see what's there. 
Now, I have an author friend, and I do call him a friend because I know him personally, that outlines 13 different kinds of bias. And I shared this in a couple of other places, and every time I do, everybody wants to know, what are all those bias again? Because it's so provocative. I'm going to share a few with you. Why can't we see our way? Why are our hearts not burning within us? The first one is confirmation bias. The human brain welcomes information that confirms what it already thinks and resists information that disturbs or contradicts what it already thinks. Complexity bias. The human brain prefer, prefers a simple lie to a complex truth. Let me see if I can get this right. It seems like today that a satisfying lie is more palatable than an unsatisfying truth. Here's another one, community bias. The human brain, <laughs> the human brain finds it very hard for you to see something your group doesn't want you to see and it will always put tribe over truth. Are we still okay? <laughs> Conspiracy bias, are you ready for this one? When we feel shame, we are especially vulnerable to stories. Listen to this now closely. When we feel shame, we are especially vulnerable to stories that cast us as victims of an evil conspiracy by some enemy or other. In other words, our brains like stories in which either the hero or the, we are either the hero or the victim, but never the villain. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> Catastrophe or normalcy bias. Our brains are wired to set baseline normalcy. Listen to this now. When are we going to go back to normal? Baseline normalcy and assume that what feels normal has always been and always will remain. That means that we minimize threats and we are vulnerable to disasters, especially disasters that develop slowly. Guys, I, I just want you to understand, I'm seeking for perspective too. I'm learning how to walk by faith all over again. I recognize when I read this kind of thing, oh my gosh, it's almost like a hand comes up off of the page and thumps me in the chest. You never have that experience, I'm sure, but I, do, I have that experience all the time. <clears throat> you, have, you know, there are so many words now that are used with great, high, great frequency in our vocabulary in the last two years, and one in particular that really grates on me that is misused and abused is apocalyptic. 
These are apocalyptic times. And I know I'm speak, speaking to a studied audience here, but do you realize that most people in the use of that word, apocalyptic, the connotation of the word, what they are implying is something entirely different than the original meaning of the word. Apocalyptic never had the, has never had the connotation of some event looming on the horizon that is cataclysmic in nature that will bring an end to the planet. It's never meant that. Even the movie industry, Apocalypse Now, and, you know, all these movies about meteors and goes on and on and on. You know what I'm talking about. It's apocalyptic. It's never meant that. The word apocalypse is our English word revelation. Truly, this is these are apocalyptic times because it's revealing where our real trust has been all along. It's revealing where our real source has been all along. We can say all we want to, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But if it is not motivated, if the intent is not coming from my kingdom go, which means my faith in militaries and politics and banking systems, then I am speaking out of both sides of my mouth. When you say thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an apocalyptic statement. Now, in case some of you are wondering if I am on the slippery slopes of hopelessness, may I encourage you. I've never had more hope now than I've had in all my life. And it's not because I have, you know, found myself in some denial that has created an immunity toward the fatalism that is so toxic in our atmosphere. <laughs> you see, we got to realize when we use the term hope, like faith, it is not something that you generate. Because the scripture talks, the scripture describes hope in this manner, that God is hope. And when you've lost hope, it's probably a good place because that means that God can hope for you. We want to know what our future is. And we need to realize that God is our future. He has always been our future. He's been our past. He's our present in our future. He's already in our future before we ever get to our future. That didn't seem to go over very well, but it's true anyway. I mean, this is not a hope that evades or avoids fatalism, but it addresses it head on. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's not subjected to time because he created time. He doesn't live in time. He lives in eternity. 
he does manifest his purposes in time. As a friend of mine many years ago said, is time is nothing but an island in the ocean of eternity where God manifests his purposes. And I believe that is so true and so succinct. It really is. So what's the future look like? It looks like God's future. And when we get to the point where we can begin to experience some measure of deliverance over our disappointment in God and realize that our disappointment is not in God, but what we expected him to do, like these two individuals, we thought this, we thought that. So when there are no answers, what do we do about that in closing? When there are no answers to these gnawing questions, as simple as it sounds, I think we need to realize that God's idea of a good thing might be totally different than yours. I mean, I don't want to be confrontational, but, you know, in our culture in particular, I'm not talking about the broader culture, I'm talking about our culture, we uh, almost... I don't think we intend to, but we almost glibly say, God is good. God is good. God is good. You know, it's like you're almost trying to convince yourself sometimes. <laughs> you know, the theologians discuss this thing called theodicy. Have you ever, anybody ever heard that term, theodicy? Uh, don't feel like you've been left out. <clears throat> but it's essentially, if God is good, inherently good in nature, how can he allow all the suffering to take place. Can I help you with this? In knowing that one of the great Jewish thinkers, I believe it was Abraham Heschel, said, when the world is suffering, it is God's suffering. Because, see, we believe in this myth of alienation and separation, and we don't realize that there's no place that God cannot be. And if every human being on this planet Every, every human being on this planet that has a pulse is made in the image of God, whether they are aware of it or not. And so what are they, whatever they are suffering, he cannot be separated from it. So it has nothing to do with his indifference or his alienation from us, but really what it is, oh gosh, what it is is causing us to become more aware of his presence. Oh, that I may know him intimately, Paul said, in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. All great spirituality and maturity comes as the result of how you deal with suffering. Suffering is inevitable. I understand that we pray, we believe in signs and wonders and miracles and deliverance. That I, I, I'm, I, See, I, what I'm saying is not challenging that idea. But as long as you are living in that skin, you are going to experience, whether it's physical, mental, relational, on whatever level, you're going to experience a degree of suffering. And my growth has to do with what I do with it. I don't say, why is this happening to me? Because when Jesus shows his scars to his disciples, later on, when he shows his scars to his disciples, it was not an scapegoating 
demonstration. Look, look, what, look what I went through for you. See, I think most of us need to realize that the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, was not just a rescue mission. It was not just to save us from our sins, but to save us from ourselves. Saving you from your sins was the easy one. Saving you from yourself, your false self, who you think you are. So God's idea of a good thing may, may not may be totally different than ours. And, you know, when it comes to us not getting the answers we want, maybe it's not the right time because sometimes as a student, you're not ready for what you need to be taught. How many of you have lived long enough to say, oh, my God, why didn't I learn that 25 years ago? You couldn't have. You couldn't have. So don't grieve over that. Just thank God you got it before you died. I'm in the evening of my life right now. I understand that. And, you know, that was incredibly helpful for me because for a long time I'd beat myself, flagellate myself. You know, why didn't I get that 20 years ago? Now I realize there's no way I could have gotten it, no matter how eloquent the teacher might have been. There's some things you learn by experience. Lastly, when we're not getting the answers to the questions, walking down this road paved with questions into a new reality. It might be because God has something entirely better than what you're asking for. And he gave, if he gave you what you were asking for, he'd be cheating you out of your destiny. So let's stand. I went longer than what I intended. And that's your fault. <laughs> it's entirely your fault. Yeah. Cody and Julie took way too much of my time. <laughs> I just want you to open your hands. Just put your hands out in front of you. Open your hands. Scott, I said put your hands out in front of you. Open your hands. <laughs> I've known him a long time. <clears throat> Lord, we assume this position because we understand that surrendering is not weakness. It's probably the strongest thing we could ever do. Because our minds, our wills, our egos have duped us into believing that surrender is a sign of weakness. Help us to see that in surrendering, this is a great demonstration of strength. And so we submit everything to you. We submit all of those gnawing questions. I, I just ask that before the ministry team comes up, in fact, they can make their way up here now. 
I just ask for people that have been in a literal mental fog, some of them for weeks and even months, I ask that you, I just have this picture of a strong wind coming from your almighty nostrils that obliterates all of those questions. And they can find, Lord, in stillness. They can find, in this contemplative state, they can find a greater dimension of peace than they have ever experienced before in their lives. Because peace has never been the absence of problems. Never. Never. And when things ramp up and things become more problematic, may we begin to realize your reality. We, may we begin to realize that the presence of those problems are proof. The presence of those problems are absolute, absolutely incontrovertible proof that they are attempting to obscure your promise from us. Just the presence of it should make us aware, oh, there's something on the other side of that that it doesn't want me to see. There's something on the other side. Thank you that you have taken our lives in the same way you took that bread and that little home and that village. And you've blessed our lives. But you didn't just bless us to be blessing us. You blessed us that you might break us. And you didn't break us just so that in some sadistic manner that you might appease your vindictive nature because you don't have a vindictive nature. But you took flesh in us. You blessed us. You broke us. And we couldn't see it in our brokenness, but you broke us so that you might multiply us so that what we have gone through we have grown through and it enables us to be empathic toward other people in Jesus name amen amen thank you so much